This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. A smoky voice chanteurs, she sings the blues of lost youth and past wildness, protesting the assaults of age, the void left by a grown child and a deceased father, and the sorrows of loved ones battling disease. High heels and hangovers, horror movies and empty hotel rooms, regrets and resignation, elements all in Adonizio's articulation of lust, the quest for oblivion, and the body's unrelenting archiving of every pleasure and pain. Do you recognize yourself? Yeah, it seems a little overblown. I'm Morris Reardon, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm talking to Kim Donizio, an American poet living in California. She's published five books of poems, The Great Acclaim in the US, and in fact, a new and selected will be published in the UK next year by Blood Axe. It's to be called Wild Nights, I think, isn't Wild that Wild Nights, right? yeah. Mm, good title. <laughs> Taken from Emily Dickinson, of course. I guess. Yeah. Uh, and you can read three new poems by Kim Adonizio on the autumn issue of, of the Poetry Review. She's currently on a flying visit to London. Kim, thank you for coming in to talk to us today. Perhaps we can begin by filling in the background a little bit. You've lived in California since you were a student, I think. You didn't start out in California. No, no, I came to California when I was about 22. So Mm. it was a great place to become a poet, where that wasn't a completely insane thing to do. (laughs) And that was in the 1970s. in the 70s, yeah. Yeah, It must have been uh, a happening place in those days for poetry, was it? It was, yeah. Yeah, Mm. a lot of open mics and Mm. a lot of people reading around town and a lot of bars and cafes and it's pretty much the scene I grew up in was Mm. there in San Francisco yeah and you were writing poems at that point I was trying to I was writing what I thought were poems you know they sucked of course but eventually I got a little better so did you have I don't know influential teachers or guiding spirits at that time You know, you know who I worked with when I got got a master's at San Francisco State, and I worked with Stan Rice, who at the time was the head of the creative writing department there. And Anne Rice, his wife, who's well known for her vampire novels, was just sort of Stan's wife, Anne, writing in the back room. And a lot of people now don't know Stan's work, which is really a shame because he was a wonderful poet and he was a terrific teacher and took my work seriously a lot. Mm. A long time, I think, before it really warranted it. I mean, I just, you know, Mm. I didn't know what I was doing, but Stan was very rigorous with me, and that was really, really helpful. Do you feel you belong to, I don't know, the Californian tradition in poetry, or is that part of the picture for you? I think I just belong to the poetic tradition. You know, of course, California at the time, there was still the legacy of the beats was very much alive, Mm. and that sort of beat happening the way Mm. that people connected with poetry was very much alive and sort of the precursor of all the spoken word that's going on now so that was that was great but i my real influences i I think just went back to the canonical writers and really trying to catch up and understand what the tradition was that i was trying to join yes you are quite a traditionalist i think and and we'll come back to that perhaps but Mm -hmm. there's also what shall i say sort of the immediacy of, of your subject matter Here's one reviewer. (laughs) 
a smoky voice chanteuse, she sings the blues of lost youth and past wildness, protesting the assaults of age, the void left by a grown child and a deceased father, and the sorrows of loved ones battling disease. High heels and hangovers, horror movies and empty hotel rooms, regrets and resignation, elements all in Adonizio's articulation of lust, the quest for oblivion, and the body's unrelenting archiving of every pleasure and pain. Do you recognize yourself? Uh, yeah, it seems a little overblown to uh, me. It's a bit charged, I guess, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But your work, though, is, uh, there is a strong engagement, a kind of high-octane engagement with life, I think, with emotional experience in your work. Do you think that's, that's true? I think that's true. I believe in emotional experience. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's the head that helps you maybe sort out how to make that happen with the craft, but it's the essence of any art, I think, is you have to have that drive and that energy and that desire to know things and that almost a lack of understanding (laughs) so that you feel passionate Mm. about trying to figure things out. Mm. And I, you know, and that's, I think my work tries to investigate that as much as possible, Mm. my own existential questions about life and physical questions and all of that. And there is that other side to it as well, isn't there? There is that kind of formal interest, that formal depth, I think, actually, to your work. One of your poems that comes to mind immediately is the Half-Hearted Sonnet, which is a very individual, but very adept sort of turning of the form. Yeah, each line is five syllables. Yeah, right? very clever. And it's very kind of speedy and very sort of uh-huh. concentrated. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of formal craft in your work, that must have taken some evolving or did you grow up lisping in, in numbers as ever? <laughs> no, I didn't know anything about poetry till I actually started studying it. Mm. I, and I actually sort of got struck by lightning first and then went, what is this thing? Mm. <laughs> so I didn't know anything. And I started out just writing crappy free verse like Mm. a lot of people do when they start writing and then I learned about forms so literally when I learned the sonnet I spent a summer thinking an iambic pentameter I couldn't get it out of my head so it just and it felt like a very natural form as certain forms do to me not other forms you Mm. know there are a couple three that I find interesting and work Mm. in and the others don't work for me did you learn it on your own or no I learned it in graduate school Mm. I was studying well it's a long story but short version of it is that I was trying to finish a degree in order to sort of do music and education and then I fell in love with poetry so I started on a master's in poetry Mm. and that's when I really started learning was when I was 28 maybe I I graduated from college and that's about when I started learning what the art was really about that kind of figures because there's a lot of literary reference actually in your poems. Some of them are almost cento-like, made up of, of allusions to other poets. I printed out one here. I had just called the the first line is the deepest. Yeah, you remember right. that one? Yeah, referencing Cat <laughs> Stevens first of all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I recognize sort of you know Frost, Eliot, Larkin, Tennyson, Eliot again, Ginsberg. And it Sexton, occurred to me, yeah, um, yeah, Beverly Sexton, Hillbillies yeah. Are in is there. it is it actually a cento or it's not? No, yeah. it, I, it's mm. just torquing and spinning mm. some well-known phrases. Mm. I mean, there's not mm. actually anything directly mm. lifted. More, 
sort of a pet. Rissing off them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're quite fond yeah. of that kind of playfulness, aren't you, in your yeah, work, I yeah. think. And, yeah, yeah. And I think my work's gotten more that way. I just did yeah. a series of sonnets that are an inversion of Shakespeare's sonnets. There are 14 of them, and the first eight are written to a young woman, and the, the next six are written to a, an African-American man. Oh, so I, I see. kind of flipped the sonnets on their head and had fun sort of invading those sonnets mm. and stealing some lines and rewriting them from a totally different perspective. Mm. So I think my work has actually gotten more allusory, <laughs> is the word, right? Yeah, um, that's a good word. Which yeah. is, you know, what I'm interested in. Yeah. I mean, I read people and I get engaged with them and then mm. I want to sort of respond in some way with my own thing, which is what all artists do, right? Mm. I mean, we look at the past yeah. and we try to take it in and then make our own version and we either subvert it or we argue with it or we carry it forward in some way and we're all trying to find ways to do that i think well that's true but it 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 is playful Mm -hmm. isn't it your your approach is not quite like elliot which is rather sort of resonant and deep Uh uh, more playful i think play is important but Mm. you know i think the best humor is also dark absolutely and traffics with Mm something else whatever you call the darker side of life or the duende or the underside or whatever Mm. that is you know so i'm kind of interested in both you know i'm Mm. I'm very interested in that but i also realize that you need to find ways to both as a human being and as an artist Mm. (laughs) to bring in the light Mm. and make sure that the light is is a part of things and Mm. so humor i think for me is one way to bring the light to the darkness Mm. is sort of like to balance them a little bit I definitely recognize that kind of polarity in your work because I don't know if you're aware of this, but a word that comes up quite often is the word terrifying. (laughs) You know, yeah, you you mentioned that earlier in an email and I thought terrifying. That's interesting. Mm. Today, the cloud shapes are terrifying. Yeah, right. Mm. How terrifying spring is in its tireless, mindless replication. Uh, That's a rather brilliant line from a poem called Onset. I was really struck by the idea of spring being terrifying. And actually, then I saw it, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, because that was a poem that originally started out out as a real Mary Oliver ripoff. It was very much about, oh, the spring and the blossoms. And it took years till I rewrote it and actually wrote what I actually experienced at the time, which Mm -hmm. was that sort of mindless replication of nature and being aware of that you know so it was like the first poem I wrote was really a false poem because it wasn't very authentic to Mm. what I actually experienced and it was what my real ideas were at least at that moment so when I finally rewrote it I abandoned the other one entirely so you began with a conventional sort of spring poem was it yeah right Mm. yeah and then turned it into in a sense an anti-spring poem yeah yeah. yeah. like Mm. Edna Millay's poem down the hillside comes spring babbling and stirring its flowers or whatever that that poem is that's about spring but it's really it's an anti-spring poem also yeah 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 there is a kind of existential loneliness in the poems too isn't there another little quote i jotted down you look out at the immense and meaning meaningless blue and know you're inside it poem called quantum Uh uh-huh yeah Mm. that's sort of Frostian in its darkness or Pascal like. Yeah, yeah I love of, Frost. Yeah. yeah. Well, you do riff on him, of course, a bit too, yeah. don't you? Yeah. So you own up to that kind of existential sense of isolation in the universe. I, I do, you know, and at the same time, I would own up to the other side where mm. we're all connected in some way and it's all 
something benevolent that I don't really understand yet. Mm. I have those moments too. So, mm. but I think often writing, it comes out of that more extreme pressure, mm. which tends to be the more difficult mm. aspects of life for me. I, it's more of a pressure and more of a trigger mm. than when I'm happy. You know, they always are mixed. But I think if I'm in a, a stage of really just being, you know, everything's great and everything's mm. really going well, I'm I'm a little more disinclined to write. Yeah. than when I'm struggling with something and then I write in order to yeah. sort of process that struggle. It's part yeah. of what helps me to deal with whatever yeah. it is. And you do seem actually to rely on poetry as a sort of way through life, as a way of discovery and yeah. so on. Is that true? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's always yeah. been that. It's the thing you would always come back to. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. You are, as I say, on a flying visit <laughs> to the UK. And you're reading tonight for the Poetry Society in a pub. Your work will be published here, as I mentioned earlier, by Blood Axe next year. And I'm curious, do you have a sense of poetry in the UK? Do you relate to it? This is the question I've been dreading. (laughs) Because I'm so woefully undereducated in so many ways. And so I, I don't think I'm representative of an American poet necessarily. You know, my view as an American poet of British poetry or even American poetry in a lot of ways because I think I jump around a lot from genre to genre and especially mm. lately I've been you know I just published a book of stories yes. I'm, I'm publishing a book of essays next year and I haven't been keeping up with any poetry really so I think I'm just trying to dodge your question a little bit but <laughs> Michael Donaghy who I um, oh, yes, who I yeah. knew at Westchester I, I love his work I'm not aware of a whole lot of contemporary, especially young contemporary British poets, but Mm. this issue of Poetry Magazine that I just got, I was happy to see that it's an issue on poetry from the United Kingdom. So Mm. Poetry Poetry Magazine in the U.S. just did this, and I've just been reading Mm. about the young poets and sort of gotten interested in checking out their books Mm. and seeing what they're up to. And some of their influences were mentioned, like is it Hugh Kennard, how you pronounce uh, it? Luke Kennard. Luke Kennard, Kennard, I think. Yeah, and I read Mm. about one young poet, I think her name was Emily Berry, who's influenced by him. And so I was thinking, oh, this is is something I want to start reading and getting into and getting involved in seeing who's Mm. over here right now, you know, Mm. because I have a more personal connection to it now. And honestly, mostly what I've read is American poets and that's probably mm. to my detriment and to America as a culture because we have that sort of monolithic we're important kind of thing yeah. you know or some people think that way well I think we're, we're often very ignorant of American poetry yeah. here too yeah but uh, the younger people that you were mentioning there mm-hmm. you know they connect a lot through social media right and exactly so on, uh, yeah and in fact that that issue of of poetry uh, was a an attempt that we're making to diminish our ignorance, I suppose. Right, yeah. right. Mm. And I know Bloodox mm. has published a lot of That's American right. poets That's as well. That's right, yeah. So you've got certain publishers like right. Bloodox who pick up American poets and publish right. them here. Right. Otherwise, we're not so likely to know them. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, through the social media and so on now, yeah. it's much more porous, I think, our yeah. kind of experience of American poetry. I have a question for you, too, about that, which is what about world poets and poets from other countries beyond American? Because I find I'm equally ignorant of those. You know, I was in Lebanon a few years ago, and I had no idea who the leading 
Arab poets were, mm. you know, and I, I felt the same thing. We're so shuttered into our own culture, you know, and, and I think what I know of world poetry has come from a couple of anthologies, one of them being Carolyn Forche's Against Forgetting, mm, and, right, you yeah. know, really learning something mm. about the breadth that's mm. out there. Poetry magazine in the U.S. I know does translation issues, and I would imagine mm. you do too, or have done for Poetry Magazine here. Well, I mean, speaking for myself, I'm always grateful of, of those kind of uh, publications mm -hmm. or anthologies that right. open windows onto other parts of the world yeah. for me. But like most people, my areas of ignorance are extensive. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I should be more ashamed of that, but <laughs> as, a, as an editor, I guess. But I would say that currently poetry in the UK is in a kind of outward looking phase. Right, I would right. say that. And uh, that's something that is, as an editor, I would encourage. And, and that's part of our kind of collaboration, as it were, with Poetry Magazine to help, at least in terms of the conversation across the Atlantic. Right, exactly. Mm. We're not very good at languages over here either, you know. <laughs> Our sort of access to French, German and so on is mm -hmm. a bit limited. Anyway, we're going to come back now to your poetry, because as I said, you have some poems in the magazine. Uh, maybe you would read one of them for us and give a brief introduction before you do so. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'll read this one called White Flower, Red Flower. It came about after a, I spent some time teaching in Italy, doing a, a little retreat there for poets. And so it sort of commemorates a, a night that we had in a place that was a former monastery. And there are actually a lot of details from that place in the poem. And there's some references to La Traviata, but I think they're pretty clear without any explanation. So he spent a year playing death in La Traviata ruining a camellia in the first act, and smoking a galoise in the last, while Violetta succumbed. Here in the former monastery, the monks succumbed, giving way to the four of us drinking sagrantino and telling stories in the gravel courtyard under the pasta-shaped stars. Out in the olive orchard, a mouse succumbs to a screech owl, and down the hillside, the old painter who owns this place is yielding slowly to cancer, but today she recited Montale's poem, The Sunflower Crazed with Light. And today we saw the white dog, whose job it is to guide a few sheep out of Chagall's canvases into the lushness of the present moment. That moment has already succumbed to the next, but here we still are, sitting at a small round table in the dark, drinking darkness from our glasses, growing dizzy with darkness, past midnight now, the date turned over, date of my friend's birth, so more darkness is poured. In the Chiesa is a painting of Jesus emerging from his tomb, hatted like a Veneto farmer. In our room is a red-robed virgin, tiny adult savior on her lap a cracked and mottled mirror on the marble-topped wood bureau, sepia family portraits on the walls. Grandio, moriosi Giovanni, my God, to die so young, sang Pavarotti and Sutherland, Alfredo and Violetta. She was surprising Brio for someone about to droop, dead, into her lover's arms. But what difference your age? Everyone's here until they're not gone but in some weird way still hovering in the air, in a cracked mirror, 
in the eyes of those grandparents and great aunts. Enter from stage left the red shock of wings, a disturbance in the trees easily mistaken for wind. That's a beautiful, moving poem. And you do get the light and the darkness there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Kim. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.